Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm sitting here with my colleagues, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mearson Bowie. Hello, Barney. And we would all like to welcome our special guest, Dorian Linsky. Hello. Hi. <laughs> We've asked Dorian to come in, not just because he's one of the leading British music writers of the last 20 years, but because he's the perfect man to help us bid adieu to Europe on the eve of the UK's exit from the EU. Dorian is co-host of the excellent Romaniacs podcast, <laughs> so we've invited him to join us in what is really a love letter to European music. Later in the episode, we'll hear an audio interview with the great German band Can, and we'll be talking about Daft Punk and more. But first, Dorian, we'd just like to know a bit more about how you came to be a music writer in the first place. It was actually for really shallow reasons. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> initially, no, the first thing, because I, I wanted, to, I wanted to, to write, I wanted to be a journalist, but I was studying English, and I thought maybe I would pursue that post-grad, whatever. And then we, we, when I took a trip down to the heavenly Sunday social, which would have been 94, right. I think. And... We arrived too late. We couldn't get in. It was this tiny pub basement, and it was the most it was the most exciting club that we were reading about. I was really into the Chemical Brothers. I was really into kind of that style of DJing where you'd hear all these different things. Um, and I just remember sort of standing outside, unable to get in, and just seeing. And that to me, it almost represented like London, the inaccessible London, which of course subsequently got to know you know, Robin Turner from Heavenly and lots mm -hmm. of people were there. And it's like, it really wasn't, it wasn't that difficult to get in. It wasn't that <laughs> fancy. But there was, it was a real sense of, because I was up in Cambridge and I just thought, I don't really want to stay, to try and stay in Cambridge in the university world. It's like, I want to come to London and be part of the whole kind of swim of things. So mm -hmm. it's that sort of excitement. And obviously yeah. I wanted to be a good writer, but... There was definitely this kind of sense of I want to be where things are, are happening. And, you know, there's that really that thing of like, is it going to be journalism where you actually go out and meet people and experience things? Mm. Or is it going to be sort of academia where it's just you and the books? Right. <laughs> yeah. At that point in my life, I was like, no, I want to be doing things. Yeah, yeah. How did you get your foot in the door writing wise? It was, there was like a friend who was way more, I had no. I really didn't have any confidence, which was a problem. I don't so think any writers ever do. Really. Oh, some, some do. I knew, there was somebody who was a real hustler, and he arranged a meeting at Dazed and Confused, who didn't pay, but it was quite a good sort of showcase. And through him, I got to do some stuff for Dazed, and it was either True and Became Trace, or Trace and Became True. It was like a hip-hop magazine from that stable. So I did stuff for them, and then I just had some, some cuttings that then I could take to sort of mix mag nor another friend was working. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't have that great sort of hustling, pitching energy, which I think a lot of, a lot of you know, music journalists are very different kinds of personalities. But I've always admired the sort of person that's just like, nothing's going to stop me, and they're sort of barreling out of their sort of small yeah. town or whatever, and they're just sort of blazing with kind of purpose and confidence. And I didn't really have that, but I just thought, if I can just get some people to give me a chance, then... I think I will write good stuff and then they will let me do more. So it was that. It was just sort of like, it was very much like a very gentle foot in the door. <laughs> and you wrote a lot about, about the sort of uh, dance 
acts and DJs and stuff. The first piece we're going to feature on the homepage is uh, an account of hanging out with Paul Van Dyke at Gatecrasher in Sheffield and then going to Berlin to be part of the Love Parade yeah. thing. That, that, that's an extraordinarily evocative piece from that time, 1999. It is, particularly since, you know, obviously the Love Parade ended up, you know, ending really terrible circumstances when it moved mm. at Berlin and there was a kind of crowd crush where people died. And this is a very sort of optimistic time and I sort of love the fact that Paul Van Dyke had grown up in East... Berlin, Berlin yeah. and had literally managed to get his papers, his family, to move a week before the wall came down. <laughs> yes. All of this hassle and expense. Yeah. And then a week later, anyone could. Yeah. <laughs> and there's this great quote, says, the only good thing about East Berlin was it was next to West Berlin. <laughs> so there was a sense that he kind of sort of embodied that sort of spirit of sort of Europe through the, you know, in that sort of first decade yeah. after, after the wall came down. The only problem is, is that I definitely really remember about that period in music writing in the dance music press. It was very, very cheerleading. Mm. It was almost sort of activist in the way that some sort of... Some people who write about politics, they very much kind of have to cheerlead for their cause yes. and then analyse it. And so you'd always have some corny kind of like onwards and upwards last line. <laughs> and, and there was always a subsection of like, isn't clubbing great? And you were trying to get all this other stuff in there about, you know, the, maybe the political context, the, the personality, some humour. But there was always that I mean, thing you had to do. It, it's worth noting that I think dance music is very hard to write about, unlike sort of pop music. Yeah, yeah. Because... Outside of the DJs, there are really no personalities. The actual music itself is frequently fairly faceless. It's it's a producer-led music in terms of new music. And so, in a way, you have to construct something else around it to, to, to put it into print. Yeah, and some people went very purple prose, very sort uh -huh. of pretentious. And I should have tried that a bit in album reviews. And there is that thing when you start out writing, sometimes you're just trying out and just looking at the sure. established writers and thinking, oh, OK, how do you do this? And then you kind of work out which bits don't really sort of suit you. And so there was just kind of like super kind of hooray for rave mm -hmm. cheerleading or incredibly pretentious descriptions of like <laughs> fundamentally forgettable abstract <laughs> techno records. Yes. <laughs> and then it was quite reassuring to move on the, the, the next piece that you chose, which was Roiksop, which was maybe, I think, 2003, so 2003. four years later. And it was like, oh, the ending's actually... Quite subtle, it isn't like, well done, Roiksop. <laughs> <laughs> well done, dance music. You know, and it was sort of about other things. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of... I could, I could see that, like, an evolution had taken place yeah. and I'd actually worked out how I wanted to write as opposed to how I thought. I mean, that cheerleading has to be at least somewhat to do with the fact that the mainstream music press didn't have much truck with dance music for a long time. Yeah, and we were quite militant. I remember, you know, again, most of these people have all sort of become friends, but, you know, Mixmag, we didn't like you at all. Mm. We didn't like Mojo. We didn't even really like Select. We didn't think Select understood dance mm -hmm. music. Select was actually really good on dance music, <laughs> but it was still just like, oh, yeah, you know, you're missing the point. Yes. yes. It, I think it's because Mixmag had been bought by EMAP, and so it still felt as if we were kind of these, you know, plucky outsiders. Yeah. Did you see that? three-part documentary on rave culture was Jeremy Della, the, the, the artist. The artist, yeah. And he linked it as a communal activity back to things like the miners' strike and so on, which I thought was quite an interesting way of looking at it. 
and that that the very nature of it being a sort of communal activity possibly is what led to what you've described as the sort of people, you know, hooray for... Well, the thing is, by that point, I think by the time I was sort of starting, say, 96, you know, it was really big business. Yeah. We were talking about, you know, the era of the super clubs yeah. and it was getting into the charts all the time. You had, you know, big, big sort of bands. And so this political... The political roots where you might talk about the kind of radicalism of the free party scene. Yeah. Or something that people talk about a lot now is the origins of techno in Detroit and house in yeah. Chicago and talking about the music of the marginalised and race and mm-hmm. sexuality. Yes. And so actually I find like a lot of younger writers in sometimes over-politicise it. What, right. was, what was frankly pretty hedonistic. Because m- most of the time people weren't, most of the people, most ravers were not particularly anti-establishment as mm. long as, you know, as long as they were allowed to dance, mm. that was... That was that, and so the politics was sort of part of it. But there was no, there was no honest way that that was always a strand in mixed magazines. Mm-hmm. The editor Dom Phillips was always interested in that, but a lot of the time, you know, you just have to. It was just people going out and having fun. Mm. Sometimes to record music we like, sometimes to music we <laughs> thought was pretty naff. <laughs> so there were certain limitations, yeah. and you were, you, but you really were representing a scene and speaking sure. to a scene. Sure. Um, so you couldn't be too kind of like critical of it and in some ways that could be quite inhibiting which Mm -hmm. is why I suppose I kind of moved on quite quickly. Well you've moved on beyond music writing altogether now haven't you to some extent. I heard you a lot last week on the book of the week which is in fact the all well in five words and you appeared. Yeah because because of your book The Ministry of Truth which is a biography of George Orwell's 1984 I think is the subtitle. Yeah yeah yeah, it's just like wanting to do different things. Yeah. And I think a lot of the time, you know, I've always been very conscious of, particularly in, in the broadsheet world, we're always conscious of music is very low. Mm-hmm. It's very low down. So you start mm-hmm. off with kind of hard news and features and sport. And mm-hmm. even when you get to arts, you've got, you've got books and film, mm-hmm. theatre. And music is like... <laughs> At the bottom of the totem pole. Maybe yes. the bottom, even below, you know, television, which used to be kind of yeah. theatre. And so often you would you would just... And a lot of mu- the music writers I found a lot of time really inspiring yeah. did find a way of just sort of showing people what else they could yeah, do. moving sideways or... Crossing over, uh, yes. and not abandoning it. No, uh, absolutely. I mean, there's also might be like Barbara Ellen, who's going to be coming in in a couple of weeks to do this podcast, Kettle Moran and people who have yeah. sort of... Step to one side from music, and that, and actually, it's been very good for them in terms of actually. It's hard for people to keep writing about pop music all their lives, given that pop music is by and for young people. So, the, the, a lot of writers we know have really hit a wall of, of, in professional terms, by sticking to writing about music. But I think that you can. If you write about other things, then the, then your music writing hopefully is a bit sort of fresher because sure. you realise you can choose, you can be a bit pickier yeah, and choose things which really kind of sort of play to your strengths and mm-hmm. just think, OK, this is the kind of music writing I'm good at. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I don't, I never really love the short album review. Mm. Of course, you've gone as how many zillion I've written, <laughs> some of which are probably <laughs> on the website. But it was like, it was never really my favourite form. Yeah, And so there are lots of other things that I prefer doing in music mm-hmm. and 
I don't see it as a huge gap between that and, say, the other stuff I do. Right. So Miranda Sawyer was always like an inspiration to me yeah. in her career in the way that she mm. went to the Observer very quickly mm-hmm. from, from the music press, the style press. And, you know, just the other week, she, you know, she interviewed Stormzy. She can still yeah. do great musician interviews, mm. but then there's all this other stuff. Mm. And I think that the different disciplines feed into each other. Sure. So I just yeah. did a thing the other day for BBC website about the forgotten sort of political context of Bridge Over Troubled Water. Which right. Because, you know, I'm thinking of it as like a pretty sappy song. Mm-hmm. And there's this kind of really interesting background right. to it and this weird... TV special they made, incredibly depressing TV special. <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm kind of writing this in the way that I would write about George Orwell. Uh-huh. It didn't seem that different. Right. right. And, and, and it's great pleasure in trying to describe how music works. I love doing that. Mm-hmm. But actually, in terms of just sort of storytelling and personalities and the history and the politics, I thought well, this I could be writing about lots of different things mm-hmm. in this way. Mm-hmm. And I no longer felt like I had to write about music like a music writer. Yeah. And I also no longer felt that people would just think, oh, you can only do that. Yeah. And I do think it's a horror, there's a real snobbery because I think there's, there's writers that write about other things. Mm-hmm. And it's just a given mm-hmm. that you can do... I've read a lot of really bad interviews with musicians <laughs> from very prestigious interviewers. Because it's just right. like, oh, you can do that. It's like there's no skill involved. You don't really need to know anything about music. You can just sort of go in there. Mm. Yes. And... Sometimes that's not true. Like, it is actually valuable knowledge and skill that you gather about how to write about music, how musicians think, how yes, they I, work. I, I always find it interesting when someone completely outside of music interviews a musician. I mean, Andrew Marr, every now and again, will, on his Sunday show, interview either an actor or a musician. And his cluelessness is becomes very, very rapidly apparent. The, hmm. the, 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 he's got no sense of the environment in which this stuff is produced and so on and so forth. Every now and again on Today and Radio 4, a musician is trotted out and they're lost, they're, they're absolutely lost. So, you know, yes, the, the, there's an absence of hinterland. <laughs> yeah, and it's, you know, there's, it's great when you develop knowledge, I've got some understanding, you know, yeah. sort of film world, I feel quite comfortable there. But, you know, I started going to theatre more over the last few years and I just... Everything was new and exciting. Like, my lack of knowledge was absolutely thrilling. Yeah. <laughs> because literally, I was just like, I didn't know you could do that. Right. Like, stage design sure. stuff. It'd be like somebody who's never been to an arena pop show and you take yeah. them to see Beyonce. And they're just like, I literally did not know you could do that. Yes. And so it was almost excitement. But then that meant that I thought, well, I, even though I'd like to write about some of this stuff, I'm not going to put myself forward until I actually yeah. know the terrain. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of really basic stuff yeah. that you just... In any field, I think you need to get your head around. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The third piece that we've chosen is your interview with Daft Punk from, well, it's six years ago now. And that that's a perfect example of a piece that teaches you a lot more about this odd couple mm. than, than you thought you knew. I mean, it's... It, it, I think you've met them just as Random Access Memories is coming out. Mm. One of Jasper's favourite. I think well, it's like, the first album you bought. Yeah, it was the first bought. album I bought on vinyl. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my very first vinyl record was Random Access Memories, it's, and it's still one of my favourite albums. It's the only platinum disc I have. It's the only time I've ever been sent a disc from an artist I've interviewed. Oh, really? Yeah. That's amazing. And I didn't, like, ask for it, and it's never happened before or since, but I have I have that on my wall. It's very nice. I would have it on my wall, too. Uh, That's uh, wonderful. I remember, I forget the name of the album, when we were first in our... Discovery was the one that we discovered and and fell in love with. Crouch End. We just played that... Relentlessly. Endlessly. Um, Yeah. 
I was at a time when I, music was feeling really stale to me. I was finding it hard to listen to new music. And that record was like, okay, this is, this is really substantial. Mm. This is really interesting. One more time. So part of the point of this episode and what we're featuring on the homepage is to try and celebrate what is different and unique and special about certain European aesthetics and sensibilities. So I'm interested in asking you about Daft Punk and what they did with American dance forms and idioms that was different in the way that craft work were different in the way that can were different. Could you put your finger on what makes an act like Daft Punk so special? Well, at the time, French music was really was really unfashionable, mm. and it was a kind of there was always a bit of a it was a bit of a joke, you know, yes. French pop music. I mean, unfairly actually, when you sort of dig into lots of really good stuff, like those guys were yeah yeah or whatever, mm-hmm. but it was a general assumption that they just like they just kept getting it wrong. Yes, and <laughs> and that changed a little bit with Air's Moon Safari, didn't but it? Daft Punk. Preceded, preceded that. Because Daft Punk's first single was like 90... I can't remember, it was 94 or 95. 94, yeah. I think. Yeah. I think because there was, there was the one before Defunk. Alive, I think it was called. And anyway, it's really, it was really exciting because, particularly Defunk, because nothing yeah. sounded like that. And they just had this brilliant... Arrogance, which I'm not saying is particularly French. You've got to be careful. But they, did, so they did have this sort of sense that they, they, were, they, they were in a different context and there was lots of other great French dance music coming out, but they also had this sort of brilliant arrogance that enabled them to just do things really differently but really pop because there were lots of brilliant innovative producers around at that time. But their innovations were, like, extremely accessible. Mm. In, in the same way that, say, the Chemical Brothers and mm. the Prodigy were. And they would just put things together in unexpected ways. Yes. And I think, they, the, I think the way they put it was that Homework, the first album, was their way of getting... Was it rock, rock fans? Rock, rock, rock fans into club rock, music. Rock fans into club music. Yeah. And then Discovery... Was sort of about, the other way around. Yeah, it was about yeah. getting clubbers into, like, 70s... 70s rock, soft rock. rock. And, it, and it kind of worked. Kind they, of worked. They, they literally changed taste... As I think, and then as did Air, that so much stuff. I've got really clear memories of stuff that just was just sort of beyond the pale mm. in the nineties for, for most of the nineties. And it was just like you just you, you couldn't touch that. It was so naff. Mm-hmm. And they would bring back not just sort of like you know easy listening mm. in the case of Air, but you know like seventies soft rock and Steely Dan. For generationally, for young people, see Dan were not a it's hit. Sort of the guilty point. pleasures sensibility that came in around that time. Yeah, that, that, that and, and with but that. Discovery came out, I think, at the same time as like Guilty Pleasures started. And actually, after a while, Guilty Pleasures became redundant. Yeah, because people like, and then Phoenix, their their kind of mates from Paris, again, they sort of revived and legitimised 
all this music to the point that it wasn't a guilty pleasure. It was really hit. When we used to play Discovery all the time, I think the track that I fell in love with more than any other was, was Digital Love. Mm. And it was the one... I still, it's just literally probably one of my 20 favourite tracks of all time. And before the term yacht rock meant anything, yeah, yeah. it's all like they... they they had discovered Yacht Rock. <laughs> and that, I mean, you're a massive I love, Daft I love, Punk fan. Yeah, I love Daft Punk, I love Yacht Rock, yeah. the whole thing. I think one of the things... <laughs> the whole thing, the whole package. Right. No, but yeah. I think one of the things, one of the points you made was that they combined things in unexpected ways. Mm. And I think that is something that was made possible by the fact that they were, quote-unquote, foreign. Mm. And that, therefore, the bank of cultural references... Although being similar, like, you know, there are very, very overt, like, Supertramp references on Discovery, for example. But Supertramp here is still quite uncool. But for I good think, reason. I think Supertramp in France was just massive. It was, you know, yeah. and similar things with, because I'm half German, there are certain things that are not German music, but that were big in Germany, and that sort of suffused the national pop consciousness in a way that is different and has a different context to the way that even if those things were hits here, they were hits in different ways. And mm. I think being able to combine those familiarities in ways that is different mm. allows you a kind of way in to not necessarily have to be ironic about it, for example, or not necessarily have to treat it in a certain reverential way, but just take what you like about it and just make something that you like. A lot of dance music was about... You know, it was about being new, new, new. And of course it had influences, because everything has influences, but it wouldn't kind of brag about them. I mean, certain kind of offshoots, yeah, there's acid jazz, of course, it was very into sort of heritage, but yeah. a lot of electronic dance music, the whole point was to sound kind of fresh. And Homework, you know, the cover was like kind of teenager's desk. And, <laughs> and the patch the, yeah, thing on it was very patch, retro. And the track wasn't it? Teachers, which is just like them naming their influences, and it would be, yeah. it would go from like DJ Pierre mm. to Brian Wilson. Right. And it was like people just didn't do that. And they were very, very good, sort of in that track and visually, right from the off, of just yeah. going, of creating completely different aesthetic that rock fans and rock critics just could get. Easily, it was like, oh, right, you know, there's this whole sort of world there. Was if you try yeah. to write about, you know, Orteca or Fotec yeah. around that time, yeah, it was I, I, it, much harder. It did help that this stuff was accessible. I mean, it's interesting, my niece is fanatical about yeah, yeah music and she's produced this kind of hours long playlist, and it's fantastic stuff. A lot of it's really fantastic. We never heard it in this country, no, it mm. simply wasn't played in the radio, wasn't accessible. So it's not like we were dismissing it. We just didn't know it existed. Yeah. And now, of course, people look at yeah, yeah, yeah with a great deal of interest, you know, in a retrospective sort of sense. But we just didn't hear it. Well, Daft Punk and Air and others, we were hearing as and when those records were being made and released. So, so there was an accessibility which simply didn't exist. But then also, there was just the whole thing, I think, with dance music, just to sort of more, just more respect for European yeah. music. Yeah. Because, I mean, obviously, you can talk about it later with, with, with Can. But, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy that we still use the term Krautrock. Yeah. Because there's no... <laughs> We've tried to avoid it right. on the side. <laughs> but it's stuck. <laughs> it's stuck, and that's yeah. what people call it. And yeah. it's like, you, you know, that is something from a 70s sitcom. Yeah. Mm. Barney, you say we try mm. to avoid it. We actually use it as the tagging term yeah, for it. Because I, it's, you can't really avoid it. Because that's avoid what it. people call it. Yeah. And, and, you know, that, and that just sort of shows it. It's just like, well, you know, even though this music from Germany is mind-blowingly 
good and original. Yeah. We, we're going to give it this kind of... The yeah. name that stuck is this incredibly dismissive, like... Uh, uh, yeah. Second World War. war. Comic. Well, yeah, war comic holdover. It's, it's uh, like almost like Brexit yeah. terminology, uh, uh, isn't and, it? And the, the, the sub-editors in the NME or Melody Maker mm. would use that in an interview with Eamon Dulles. I mean, we have made days of making you listen. And yeah, things yeah, like yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you just, know, I mean, it was... It's so reductive and lazy, actually. Yeah, and yeah, and the French that. would be, like, sexy. And like I said, I wasn't saying... It's, you know, the French would be, like, kind of sexy... But kind of arrogant, yeah, yeah. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe a bit like people from war well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. and then some people, and then other countries were just a complete mystery. It's just like I don't yeah. know. It was very confusing, like when you're sure. yellow or whatever. So they're from Switzerland. I've no idea. I've no context for this. Yeah, are they yeah. are they rich? Yeah. I mean, they were actually rich. To yeah, be yeah, fair. Yeah, 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 yeah. Your your portrait of this very enigmatic duo is fascinating because there aren't that many people who've interviewed them in recent years. Mm. So that must have been quite exciting to see them without the robot masks on. And you get the the sort of chemistry between these two. It's a bit like a lot of great double acts in mm. pop. You know, I don't know, Sparks or Pet Shop Boys. Thomas is... I, I'm only going to attempt to pronounce the names. You might be able to pronounce them. Oh, it's like them. Thomas and Thomas, Guiman. Yeah, Guimanuel de Homem Christo. Yeah, I don't yeah. even know. Do you want to have a go? <laughs> anyway, they're <laughs> fascinating. Right. They're in their late 30s at this point, so six years ago. And Guimanuel is... is is very, I mean, he almost doesn't say anything, doesn't yeah, he? No. He's, he's really taciturn with you. And Thomas is the sort of theorist who's, who's talking mainly. I mean, did you, did you enjoy the interview? Well, it's quite funny because you were on safe grounds with Thomas. You could just, you know, you knew you'd get the interview with him. But there was, I'd forgotten, obviously, you know, when you reread it, I remembered this where Schema hadn't said anything for ages. And I was just like, after this long, <laughs> slightly hard to follow kind of monologue from Thomas, I was like, do you agree? And he goes, if I disagree about anything, I will tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and he was just kind of like, and he was just dressed differently. He was just kind of this surly. And it was, I think I said in the piece, it was like Thomas had like brought his teenage son to work with him. <laughs> Even though he was actually a year older, I believe. Yeah. 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 And he was just like sitting there like, ooh, ooh. Yeah. And was so, you know, a solo interview with him, I think, would, would be murder. And I thought that was hilarious because I mean, one of the best things in an interview is if you are, even if you can't show it, if you're amused during the interview, if you've already, it's just like, oh, this is a funny setup, then you're away. Mm. You just have to not, you know, necessarily show that you're finding them funny. But then maybe they mean <laughs> yeah. it too. You know what I mean? The whole thing, it's like, is, is this just a bit? Mm. You know, with Chris Lowe, everybody now knows that Chris Lowe knows exactly what he's doing and he's very funny. Whereas in early interviews, the Pet Shop Boys, some people were just like, what's his problem? Yeah, I mean, he was quite abrasive, actually, wasn't he? But that was just... Now that's just kind of... It's this sort of lovable deadpan... So he's got like a sort of deadpan commentary mm. on everything that Neil is saying. Mm. But this was like... This was more extreme chemistry like that. Yeah. And without the jokes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But I still thought it was really, yeah. really funny. And yeah. I really admired what they were, what they were doing. It yes. was this incredible... And what Rob Stringer yeah. at Sony kind of backs them. yes. It was just this really audacious, nobody else is doing this yes. thing. Like a whole a project in the way that they marketed it and teased it. Everything about it was so absurdly over the top and expensive. Yes. <laughs> Luxurious. <laughs> Dorian, we have to talk about Romaniacs. 
sure. Okay. Because tomorrow at midnight, when this podcast will be out, we will be leaving the European Union. I don't know whether your love of things like Daft Punk and Roiksop fed into your involvement with no. <laughs> the Ramoning mo- movement. But just tell us briefly about Romaniacs, which is uh, about two and a half years old now, and mm. you, you've you hosted that for all that time. Not every week, but many, many weeks. Yeah. It's a sad, a very sad moment, I imagine, for, for the podcast. Yeah, because... I mean, what's weird is it's just been such an odd journey and if you think about it i think a lot of people really forget this i've noticed some sort of revisionist accounts of the sort of the remain movement where the year between the referendum and the 2017 election just disappears mm-hmm. when they go well, people weren't willing to compromise it was like every amazing most remainers had just accepted oh brexit's going to happen let's mm. just see if we can get the best brexit we can there was mm. this whole year of just kind of defeat numbness really and numbness mm-hmm. and the uh, activists were very depressed there really wasn't much happening you know people's vote didn't even come together till 2018 Mm -hmm. so during that period i just didn't i don't know i didn't know what to think so the thing is is that the way that i feel now is yes dejected about it but also it's like well this is sort of what i expected Mm -hmm. for a very long time Mm -hmm. it was only after the 2017 election and then the activism really started ramping up and the parliamentary arithmetic changed yeah and then there was a feeling of like maybe we could stop this but it was always really hard it was only kept alive, that possibility, by very sort of canny amendments and yeah. legal challenges and this and that. And so it's sort of, I feel differently about it to, for example, losing an election. Mm. We've got this real shock and you thought you could win and you didn't. Mm. Whereas with here, it's like, well, actually, the referendum was lost mm-hmm. a lot, three and a half years ago. Yeah. And in a way, I've always been, I've been coming to terms with that while just thinking, but maybe, maybe we could change. But we started off to not just try and stop Brexit, but to report on it. Because mm-hmm, yeah. we thought we, it was before the 2017 election. So we just thought, we can't stop it. Mm-hmm. Let's just talk mm-hmm. people through it and unravel the implications and obviously be very critical of it. I personally find the last few years exhausting mm. as a determined Remainer. But there was something exhausting about this parliament set in a sort of block of ice and unable to sort of... It wasn't, but then I was... I mean, for us, covering week to week, there was always something Something going on. There were moments of... It was very dramatic. Great excitement, more more parliamentary drama Mm. than than ever, really. At times it was... It was frozen in its outcomes. Yes, It was was basically, there was all this activity and then nothing changed. Yes. It was a very odd... Yeah, thing, yeah. and I think it was very exhausting. That, that's exactly what I was tra- trying to say. covering it, yeah. or even just like following it. Yeah, I don't know. It's just such mixed feelings because it depends. It's, in some ways, I think about well, look, they own it now. Mm-hmm. This is their project. You know, we fought and fought. Mm-hmm. This is what it is. Mm-hmm. And then you see things like the people in the European Parliament singing "Old Lang Syne" mm-hmm. while the Brexit Party MEPs are waving their shitty little flags. Yes. Yeah. And just being the worst of our country. Yep. And then Europe showing the best of Europe, yep. which is just like, we're really sad about this, but we wish you well. Mm. And I think there, are, there is that thing, which I think was when the Remain movement was its most successful, most emotionally moving, was when it touched kind of like what Europe meant. Yeah. Yeah. And how much, going back to what we're saying about music, how much our sort of attitudes, I thought generally our attitudes to Europe had changed. Mm. <laughs> We've become more... 
European in some of our habits, mm. more open to, you know, good stuff coming from lots of different countries. That's very much a generational change as well. As right. well. I mean, you know, I, I'm certainly the oldest person in this room and I'm very much the generation who had parents who fought in the Second World War and grew up reading war comics with that whole baggage, the post-1945 culture. And so I, for a lot of people of my generation, I mean, I'm an absolute Remainer, but a lot of people of my generation were pro-Brexit. And what's been marvellous, and it's partly a consequence of things like the growth of foreign holidays and so on and so forth in the 60s and 70s, is seeing a really substantial change in generations younger than myself. Well, the referendum happened during... Glastonbury, and I was at Glastonbury, mm-hmm. and it was the weirdest, <laughs> just really horrible, weird 24 hours. Yeah. And I actually bumped into Andrew Harrison, who set up Romaniacs yeah. and asked me to be involved, who has previously edited me at Select, mm-hmm. Q, yeah. and Mixmag, and other and, magazines. Yeah, but you wrote at The Word as well, presumably. The Word, yeah. Else. I mean, I just know, I mean, he's been the most consistent presence in my sort of right. journalistic life. And I just remember how kind of like, angry he was on that day and how just everyone didn't know what to do and there were a lot of bands even mm. people you wouldn't expect to be particularly political were making statements and it did feel like a real kind of punch in the gut yeah. to a certain demographic demographic yeah. certain faction and, and, in, and generation in British mm. life yeah. and a kind of view of Britain and, and I and you know obviously I still feel that and it's fine and people can say well the people have spoken and now Johnson's got a majority and it's like but that doesn't mean that you're the version of Britain that you believe in mm-hmm. and the values you have mm. should just sort of go away. No, so right. it's not like it's not like how it works. No. It's just like well, your vert- values have been beaten, so you must find some, different values. Some sort of zero sum game uh, yeah. description. Mm. I, I, I think I think that's absolutely right. Before we talk about the audio interview, you should just briefly mention a couple of the other free pieces on the site. And one of them actually goes back to 1970. Richard Williams, essentially, before the term Krautrock had come into uh, any kind of vogue, it's a melody maker piece, June 70. Richard Williams takes a common market-minded guess at a future trend in pop, <laughs> which is great. Yeah, and it's essentially, it touches on Eamon Duell and The Can. The Can. <laughs> That's before <laughs> we even joined the EEC. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yes. Exactly, it's really interesting. So it's just, it's just a sort of, is this... The, is this going to be the new thing, the new Euro rock? And, wow. and he, he writes of Cannes, whose monster movie album was already out at that point, and says that, if anything, they're even harder and more unpleasant than the Velvet Underground. We'll be hearing more about Cannes in a moment. There's, there's also actually a great piece from 75 by Carl Dallas, who was really known as a sort of almost like a folk writer. Well, he, yes, but with yes. about an interview with, with Kraftwerk, he flies up to see them play a really bad show in Edinburgh by their own admission. And then he talks about being on the autobahn in Renfrewshire, which is very, very funny. But they're wonderfully Teutonic in, in the way they speak about their music. It's just, it's just terrific. So we are ambivalent about the impersonal nature of modern life. On the one hand, we're excited by the colossal scale and coldness of modern technology. On the other, we can be repelled by it. And, I mean, all their interviews were a bit like that. Oh, but God bless Kraftwerk, because sounds like they they basically just gave you ways to talk about their music. Yeah. They were yeah. so sort of yes. so, so many, yes. very generous to writers. It was yes. just like, these are themes. This is what we're ambivalent about. Yeah. yeah. This yeah. is the kind of the visual yeah. language. 
Yes. Go for it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, can were very different. So yeah. why, Mark, I mean, why don't you tell us a little I bit about... Just briefly, one yeah. of, in response to this, yeah. this British idea of the Teutonic or the German, <laughs> that, I mean, you know, even the way that you kind of read that out, it's mm. like it's very serious and very sort of earnest and whatever, but actually there's a humour in that that I think is very often overlooked. Yes. Very, very often overlooked yes. by... Brits about Germans in a similar way that we were talking about when the, the French earlier. Well, you know? also you're, you're talking about the cultural stereotype which the yeah. Britons have imposed on Germany as a consequence as much of two world wars yeah. And, yeah, and, yeah. And, and the nature of German militarism and so on and so forth. You know, this is a stereotype I grew up under. Yeah, you exactly. Know, absolute, absolute. And, and frankly, it's complete bollocks. Well, of course. As, of course. as, you know, as the can audio well, will show, because well, exactly. they're fucking hilarious. Well, let, let's, <laughs> let's talk about this. This yes. is Andy Gill interviewing Michael Caroli, Erman Schmidt, and Holger Kazukai <laughs> in 1997. It's a delight. This interview is absolutely fabulous. Slightly sadly, one bit of it, after about 30 minutes, it gets a bit scratchy sounding for about 15 minutes, but otherwise it's very, it's very good quality. They are charming. They are just... Positively chuckles. They are hilarious. Yeah. You, you know, they, they absolutely undermine any stereotype, yeah. you know, in that respect. They start off by talking about the remix album just come out at that time, and they, they love it. They've had nothing to do with it. They didn't mm. participate in it. They, they really like it. Then they, they go right back talking about the very, very first track they ever played, song they ever played together, where Ermin um, Schmidt's playing the violin for the first and last time in his life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They talk about the, the way the band is structured and the way they shared royalties. Every song was a can song. And it was only towards the end when they got outside musicians to join the band who started demanding their chunk of the songs they feel they contributed most to. And they said that kind of killed the band, that, mm. that, that process. And then they talk about their homemade studios. And we're going to listen to a clip now about their second one, which was lined with 1,300 mattresses. 1,500. Whatever. Was anyway, in, anyway this, in is, their castle. This, this is great. Uh, in the second in the cinema, which is a huge room, we covered, we nailed mattresses to the wall. 1,500. <clears throat> We get them from the army. Well, yeah, we, we, we get them, get from them the for, 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 for really, you know, they, they you know, they, they, every, every year they yeah, change yeah. So, so actually, I, actually that, that's what, what, what came to my mind. Uh, we, we, that must have been an inspiration of all our music in the Weilerswitz studio was that we were, of course, surrounded by millions of erotic dreams, dreams erotic <laughs> dreams, and probably <laughs> sperm. <laughs> you know, uh, they, all these young guys. <laughs> <laughs> probably got a few bed bugs as well. Yes, <laughs> I've never. Th- I think we we, yeah. we killed them with a the sound. <laughs> <laughs> Sonic terrorism. <laughs> Certainly, the studio smelled like it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, you know, Andy Gill's a very good interview for a start. He's, he's very good just asking questions, really letting, letting them get on. But that really sort of gets you, gives you a sense of what the whole interview's like, yeah. that they clearly still adore one another, even though they haven't worked together for, for decades. They really like one another. They really respect one another. They talk at length about the one who isn't present in the interview, Jackie Lieberzeit, the marvellous drummer 
Do we know why Jackie wasn't there? Was he, was he just doing another interview I somewhere? Have, I, have, I mean, I, I, or he I, hadn't got out of bed he, or something. He, he, it's a shame he's he not there. He may have been but... too busy doing something. They're basically on a promotional yeah. junket promoting this remix album. He maybe was just too busy doing other stuff, yeah. for whatever reason. They talk about him with just such enormous respect. They tell this fantastic story about how they had asked him if he knew a drummer because they needed a drummer. And he said, yes, I think I do. And he kept, then he turned up at the next day at rehearsal and said, it's me. <laughs> yeah. and, and at that point, he'd been playing free jazz and was really sick of what, funny, yeah. using, using a bow on cymbals and things like mm. that. And he, and he talked, they report him as talking about how restricted free, free jazz was because there were so many rules, paradoxically, about yeah. it. Like, you couldn't play a rhythm in free jazz, you know, and so on and so forth. Yes. Uh, they talked extensively about both Malcolm Mooney, their first singer, and Damasus Suzuki, their second singer. Malcolm Mooney, who wasn't there for long, an album and a half before he basically lost his marbles. I mean, he had a breakdown. He did, scripture. really. Um, well, because he was so convinced that he was going to be drafted yeah, to fight, f- fight in Vietnam, wasn't it, 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 All of that sort of stuff. Yeah. But they talk about him with huge respect. I think it's Erman Schmidt who says that he learnt so much from Malcolm Mooney, you know, yeah. which is not something yeah. that we'd think of. You mm. know, this guy was very briefly in the band, but sort of laid the template for how a singer was going to work with the cat. We'll play a clip later at the end of the podcast where they talk about Demo Suzuki's first gig with them. He'd never even rehearsed with them and he did this gig. Yeah. And it's just the funniest thing. And, and who's I, there watching them? David Niven. <laughs> of all people, <laughs> yeah, yeah. there's David Niven at the back. And he stayed. He's one of the handful of people who stayed to the end and went up and talked to them afterwards. And, <laughs> yeah. Which is just... And then, bonkersly, they start talking about Andrew Lloyd Webber and Cats because at that point, Erm um, Schmidt was doing... A musical was writing a musical yeah, based uh, on Gorman Girls. Yes, and he's talking about how uh, Lloyd Webber. You know, the, the music is terrible, but it's really interesting to see how he structured this thing. Yeah. And Michael Caroli goes on to talk about modern electronic music and so on and so forth yeah. in a way which a lot of current musicians have really recognised. Mm. He's talking about musicians not using computers but using like, modular synthesizers, mm. which is now, as Jasper will say. Hot, hot, hot. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. great. It's a fantastic... Dora, and you're a can fan, I assume. <laughs> yes, no, I, I, I am. Yes, no. Yeah. Yes, I am. No, yeah. it's one of the best stories in music. Yeah. Just like in David mm. Stubbs' sort of future days. Yes. And it's like, there is a problem, and it's not David's fault at all, because the material is, is what the material is. But basically... Whenever you're not reading about can, you're just like, this is really interesting, you know, for a kind of, you know, cluster mm. or yeah. craft work or noi. Yeah. But then you're just like, I'm looking forward to going back to can, though. Yeah. Because they're, they're, they're going to be up to something mental. Mm. And there's just something, they're one of the few bands, I think, where there's something fundamentally inexplicable about the music. They're always like, in the same way, it's like the opposite of craft work. Yeah. Craft work were like, look, guys, this is what we're up to. Mm. This is the sort of basic language mm-hmm. you're going to need. There's a vision and a yeah. mission, isn't it? And Canada's yeah. just like, no, but, you know, even like, like the words, sometimes they're using words that you, 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 yeah. you don't understand mm-hmm. in the title. You know, the titles are no hell. Mm. You kind of think, oh, yeah, you listen to one track and you go, yeah, no, I think I, I kind of I <laughs> get what they're up to here. And then the next track is like something completely different. <laughs> and there aren't many, they're just one of those sort of bottomless artists because you can't, you're never really going to have, like, a unified field theory of Cannes. Yeah, I feel like I have a new appreciation for Cannes music, having listened to this. I think think that's right. In a way, it explains the inexplicable, that they are these really diverse group of personalities who came from all kinds of different places, from 
classical musical education. Yeah, they spent like a couple of them spent like ten years studying Stockhausen. Yes, exactly. And then you've got Caroli, who's just basically kind of long-haired rocker, you know, (laughs) and Dama Suzuki, who's a busker, a Japanese busker, you know, as was. Malcolm Mooney to some extent. Mm, yeah. They were this extraordinary Malcolm people. Anyway, it's, it's a fantastic interview. It's about an hour and 12 minutes long. Every minute of it is, is worth it. It's, it's, really, it's it one really of the, is. I, I, I put up a new interview every week and this is one of, absolutely one of the best. Though. What else do we have new for subscribers now? <laughs> right, well, I'm just going to race through this because we're sort of pushing... The, yeah, you've got about bit, ten minutes. Got about ten minutes. Um, <laughs> chop, chop. <laughs> Rave, May 1964, where Mod's uh, quizzed about fashion, mod fashion, and says Ron Barfield, 18, insurance clerk of Chelsea, white suits, you see them all over Africa. How can you be a mod if you're behind Africa? It takes more than clothes to make someone interesting. And then Alex Miller, 18, an electrician... Strong take. Strong take. And Alex Miller, an electrician from Wembley, he says, only one mod boy in hundreds wears perfume or powder. And it doesn't mean he's funny, he just does it to be different. Now, I think that's a really interesting quote, because what... I don't think any of us have really connected is how closely the people who were big in land litter, the bows of this world, were originally mods. Well, Mark Boland. Well, of course. Yeah, Most he, definitely. He, you know, he was a and face in yeah, yeah. But the idea of transgression in terms of adoption of women's things like face powder and perfume... Mm being a mod thing, just leads you straight into the sort of glam and glitter world, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and so this is 1964. Having that mentioned in 64 is really, I think it's really... Great piece of fashion journalism. And then we go Speaking on. briefly of 64... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, we won't. When I'm 64, when someone is 60... Are you going in that direction? Yeah. Well, I mean, basically, I'm going to be at 64 when this, the day this broadcast tomorrow, Saturday, which means today is John Lydon's 64th birthday himself. Ooh, happy birthday, Happy George. birthday, John Lydon. Give me your answer, fill in a form, mine forevermore. Will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? Talking about mods, Roslyn Russell interviewed Mark Boland for Disc in 73. He says, I'm a street punk. I don't want to get, get too far away. I'm not a star. I'm an anti-star and always was. What utter tosh, you know. Rosalind Russell, I, I posted that on Facebook, and she posted on the thread saying it was, he was full of bullshit. But really, he was full of But it. very, very enjoyable to interview. Yes. <laughs> uh, he says, it wouldn't be music structured to make the body move. It's brain music. I wouldn't want to misguide any kids who wanted to make their breasts boogie. <laughs> Sorry? Okay. Boogie and breasts. Thanks, um, and I'll read a chunk of this next one, because it's just fabulous. It's Tony Cummings' Black Music, Inside the Philly Sound. Now, he'd already written this book. This is a, not an excerpt from the book. This is him. He spent basically a couple of days going to Sigma, going to Philadelphia International Records, meeting everyone. And it's just, he starts off with, this quote. Hi, baby. You know, you're real pretty. What's your name? The slim, strikingly beautiful girl in knee-length winter coat and generous afro looks across to the source of the voice. She gazes for fully five seconds at the Cadillac, which has stopped at the red light by her bus stop and the smiling driver peering from the window. 
The car is pale pink with custom-built windows shaped into representations of hopping, sitting and crouching rabbits. The driver is a plump, light-skinned black man with a smooth, unlined face and a suit as ostentatiously expensive as his gleaming Cadillac. Bunny Sigler is on his way to the office. <laughs> I, 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 I just love that. You yeah. know, it's just such a good piece of writing. Yeah. I mean, there's another chunk. I'll, I'll leave the other chunk out. But, but it, it, it's, it's a long piece, about four and a half thousand words. And Tony Cummings, who wrote this, not marginal, but you know, fairly marginal magazine, Black Music, is, I think, one of the best writers we've got on Rock's mm, Back Pages. Yeah, yeah. His, his prose is consistently fabulous, you mm, know. Mm. And it, really, oh, I will read the second bit. He's now Sigma Sound. In the studio sit two dozen musicians clutching violins, violas, cellos, and I notice a harp. They're all white, save for a middle-aged, stocky black man in snazzy, checkered trousers, clutching a conductor's baton. Bobby Martin taps on his music stand half a second after an instruction to commence has been drawled into his clamped-on earphones, and immediately instruments are tucked under chins or gripped between flannel kneecaps. The MFSB string section are an unlikely-looking bunch. Middle-aged paunches hang over stay-pressed slacks next to stocking legs peeping from matronly pleated skirts. The spectacled eyes squint learnedly at sheets of music. I just, you know, I, I think this is just really, really nice. Yeah, 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 yeah. Dave Marshall, 77, Elvis has just died. This is your Rolling Stone magazine. It's full of tributes to Elvis. And Dave Marshall says, His life must have been brutally lonely, for Elvis went it alone, took the biggest chance of all. One of the reasons the Beatles did better, or at least lasted longer at their peak, was that they had learned from his mistakes and successes. Elvis had no such map to guide him, so he had to invent himself over and over, come up with new terms for dealing with each situation. In the process, he invented us, whether we know it or not. Which I think is fair to say. Archie Shep, interviewed by Brian Case, Melody Maker, 85. He was very nervous about this interview because Archie Shep had a reputation as being very tough, particularly on white interviews. Yeah. In fact, he turns out to be utterly charming and they basically share a bottle of whiskey and a cab across England. He says, Should you play merely to satisfy white folks? Is Negro music always for making the white world happy? Which is... You know, a pretty good question. The artist today, if he isn't a Michael Jackson who's shaved down his nose and lips to fit the uniform TV image, just doesn't make it. I mean, he's tough as Archie mm. Shepard, and he's consistently interesting. Mm -hmm. 1987, John Hazelwood interviewing ad rock of the Beastie Boys for Number One magazine. And he's just very funny. Cornish pastors are deaf. It's like eating a bunch of sick. There's just everything there. And, and we're a rock and roll as it should be, a release. You don't have to worry about this and that. You don't have to listen to Paul Weller. <laughs> and and it's, it's great. And again, I posted a quote from this, and a lot of people posted saying what good people they were to interview, even right back in the day. They were huge Not fun. I like Cornish pasties too. No, no. John Aiswood has just come on board, by the way, which is uh, yes. so it's a nice way to great. introduce in, in, him in, to the site. Introduce him indeed. Joel Sullivan in the San Francisco Chronicle talking about the massive success of The Bodyguard, the, the soundtrack, soundtrack album, album, which was largely Whitney Houston. And this is a quote. This is Arista Records Vice President Roy Lott being quoted. He says, We felt good about the music. We thought we had hits, but I never thought we'd end up in phenomenon land. Oh, I mean, that's just such a marvellous piece of sort of corporate speak. <laughs> yeah. We're in phenomenon land. And lastly, Caroline Sullivan on 
five, the phenomenon that is five, and the manufacturing of boy bands. <laughs> and, they uh, no longer live in phenomenon land. We started conceiving this last November, says Chris Herbert, safe, that's the company's management company, safe's leather-jacketed creative side. We auditioned 2,000 guys. The final line-up was convened in February, and we signed with RCA in mid-June. The company decided they wanted to create a successor to take that, and we think we have. And then further quote, you can't hope five talented people will just meet up and form a pop group. There has to be a catalyst, says Simon Carl, RCA's A&R manager. Oh, yes. oh so, so, yeah, That's that, where it I think started. Phenomenon Land is kind of an interesting precursor <laughs> to the concept of viralness. Yeah. It seems like, you know, Phenomenon Land has now become going viral. Yeah. Yeah. I like Simon Cowell's contempt for the idea that it would ever be possible for a great pop group to form from just people just meeting each other. As, if, mean, this is, as yeah. if this has never happened. I'm the, yeah. the I mean, Beatles. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's, it, it's a pretty astounding concept, isn't it? That's but uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting piece. It's, yeah. it, it's, a, it's about... It's that moment when this massive explosion of manufactured pop is occurring. It's always existed. Now, we all know that manufacturing pops always existed. Go right back to the 50s. And who was that particular manager who would, you know... Larry Parnes. Larry Parnes and rename everyone and so on and so forth. Yes. And to some extent, Mickey Most and Rap Records had, had done some of that sort of stuff in the 70s. But suddenly in the 90s, there was this massive plethora, Spice Girls, Take That and so on. And out of that, we, we entered this world of totally mm. manufactured music. Yeah, 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 yeah. Jasper, have you got anything to say? Um, just about... briefly, I'd mention I've added a four and a half thousand word interview with Matthew Herbert, who's a sort of electronic musician. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't really heard of him, but he seems to be somewhat of a darling of The Wire, which is where this interview Definitely. was printed. Mm-hmm. Interviewed by Rob Young. And it's actually a fascinating interview. I found myself really glad to have read it. And Matthew Herbert comes out with some interesting stuff because it's right as he's releasing an album, a big band album with a big band consisting of, like, 40 players. It's just a total lateral movement from, you know, sampling the sounds of everyday stuff and Mm -hmm. and gadgets and whatever to just creating this actually really interesting album. We listened to a bit of it Mm. with, you know, 40 musicians in a room. And he comes out with some interesting stuff, like, I want to create music that in 200 years' time people can still play, or that, should I not be able to do a gig in South Africa tomorrow, other people could do it for me. And that's the real test for electronic music, the sense of community and sharing. You can't sit down and play an Orteca song. It would take years to work out what they were doing, and you need the same equipment. And yet, you could pick up a guitar, having never played it before, and play 25 Bob Dylan songs within an hour, and share those ideas. And I think that's really interesting because it also kind of ties back into what we were talking about earlier when it comes to Daft Punk and when it comes to electronic music and when it comes to the idea of capturing something human in electronic music, Mm. even though it's made with machines. Because obviously it's possible, but the way to do it is not obvious. Mm -hmm. I bet Orteca didn't think they'd get not one but two mentions in this episode of the podcast. <laughs> not, not wildly flattering, right? <laughs> no, they're, like, they're, like the, they're like the evil machine people in this podcast. <laughs> and were you also going to talk about... Yeah, there's an interesting, yeah. interesting Laura Barton piece from 2015 in The Guardian about the new blues, and it's sort of exploring the various twists and turns on the journey of blues as a, as a form of music, because... 
as is always the case, there are people reviving it and doing things with it that, you know, trying to do new things with it. And she interviews a whole bunch of people, including Benjamin Booker, who's a kind of new blues guy, and Rag and Bone Man, who's sort of white English guy who who had a big hit. Huge hit, yeah. It's a good piece because it goes and tracks lots of different strands and then brings them together in a way that sort of makes sense. And one of the questions is, how does authenticity figure in musicians, particularly white musicians, playing blues music? And so she writes, but for some, the issue of authenticity does niggle. I have a very particular take on things, says Janice Monty, professor of sociology at Dominican University in Illinois and director of the Blues and Spirits Symposium. I've been arguing for a long time that the blues has been jacked. Most new blues musicians are white males, American, European, Australian. Mm -hmm. And that's not to take away at all from the talent and innovation of these young people, but there is this little addressed but important issue. If we're looking at blues legacy, blues aesthetic, it's a history of a legacy of oppression, but also a black aesthetic. And I think that's... Mm -hmm. An extremely valid point mm-hmm. to be making, and it's it is kind of important. It's owed somewhere this this music form. Okay. I, I mean, I, I think there's a whole probably we don't have time to go into the sort of the conversation one could have about one that. could certainly have a um, conversation about. But this. but I, I think authenticity. There's two or three different meanings to authenticity here. I mean, the one is the authenticity of the experience of the musicians who are now playing in verticalness blues, but secondly, the place of authenticity. Mm-hmm full stop in music, and some extent we touched on that when David Toop was here, that it's actually a slightly bogus concept. This notion that some music is more or less authentic than other music is is a slightly spurious notion, that, that, that there's nothing wrong with inauthenticity in music. I don't know why I'm talking about dance music all the time. In the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, it's not all I listen to or, indeed, or I write about it that much. No. But there was a really interesting thing that when this Russian techno DJ Nina Kravitz had cornrows mm-hmm. and she was accused of cultural appropriation right. with that with that hairstyle which is you know fair enough mm-hmm. but then there's the kind of and how can somebody that plays kind of this music of kind of black you know descent do this and it was because they would say techno and it was like well she was born in the 90s mm-hmm. she grew up I think in a, in a very remote part of like in the remote east far east of Russia right and at that point the first techno record she would have heard you know, there would have been white European yeah, techno yeah, records yeah. for 20 years. And I thought that to me seemed like an absurd claim that yeah. anybody that basically has a kind of an electronic 4 4 beat mm-hmm. somehow is tied to Detroit yes. in 1986. And I thought this is, it's really complicated because you don't, the roots do matter. Mm-hmm. And you don't want everything, you know, that the, the, those kind of people to just be squeezed out of a genre. Mm-hmm. And yet, in some ways, when a genre's been around for long enough, mm-hmm. in what sense can you meaningfully say, certainly with techno, baseball, yeah, blues yeah. and water baseball, that it, it must represent X or it belongs to X? Yeah. Because there's so many iterations of it over yeah. the years. I, I think that's absolutely right. I think the problem with new blues players is new blues. I just think it's boring as hell. <laughs> I mean, I come from a blues-playing background and I play enough free-improvised music and someone said to me, that actually I was playing post-blues, that she could hear the fact that I was a blues player in the free improvisation, but it wasn't blues. And I think there's something stultifying about the recreation, the religious recreation of old music forms, generally. Also, I mean, white guys doing the blues voice is... Oh, it's excruciating. It's very unpleasant sound. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, I agree. I think we are we got almost all out of time. Yeah, we got I, a, we got I only just wanted to mention one piece. Mm-hmm. We lost uh, Chris Darrow the other day, mm-hmm. who was one of the founding members of a very influential 
L.A. band called Kaleidoscope in the 60s and then had a, a long career as a session man and made a lot of solo records and fascinating guy. So we featured an L.A. weekly piece by Michael Simmons from 2009 and I just want to mark his passing. I think Jimmy Page at one point said that Kaleidoscope were his favourite band. A lot of interesting things came out of Kaleidoscope uh, and, and out of Chris Darrow's work so this is farewell to him. We haven't even mentioned, of course, your your magnum opus, which was your first book, Thirty Three Revolutions: A History of Protest Songs. We should give that a name check. Thank you. That's that's a that's a hell of a first book to write. It was enormous. <laughs> well, the problem is, once you have a concept where you have thirty three revolutions per minute, thirty three chapters, each yeah. about a pivotal protest song, the entire history of the protest songs from the nineteen thirties through to two thousand and ten. <laughs> yeah, you've made a rod, big rod for your own. You're back. kind of stuck. You yeah. can't whiz through it. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm so, not. Quite interested in this particular revolution, so yeah. yeah. So you end up writing yeah. a very long book, and my determination with the with the Orwell one was like, do you know what? I want to write one that just moves quicker, mm-hmm. yeah, because I didn't have this sort of structural structural handicap, I suppose. And I was just like, I just wanted a book that people would actually finish. Because the problem with 33 Revolutions <laughs> is I designed it to be read all the way through, as you do yeah. with a book, and virtually everybody, including my wife, my friends. Any musicians I spoke to. No, they just basically read the chapters they were interested in. So any attempt that I had to have, like, through lines and callbacks, people just read the chapters that they were particularly interested in, which wasn't really my sort of intention. It's still... They still bought it, so that's fine. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, no, it was like... It was a kind of madly... It's like starting your career with like a triple album yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> it was your tales from the topographic ocean but it's an extraordinary piece of work and there aren't nearly enough books written about you know pop and politics and, and yours is sort of one of the monoliths in that now you said you're not working on a new book no it took me years to come up with I another bet. idea and it, it is hard yeah. because you want to have something that you feel so passionate about yeah, and that you can bring that you think that you can bring something to. Mm. And so I'm very... I'd love to, because I love the process. The, the process of writing a book is just, is just wonderful. Because it's digging back. When you're talking about the Rock's Back Pages stuff, I'm instantly sort of thrilled by, like, just the sound of contemporary reporting mm-hmm. on Bunny Siegler yeah. or mod sexuality. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, because it's a lot of stuff... You don't get that a lot of time in retrospective yeah. narratives. And you go to the source... And so researching a book, the great thrill is that mm. you're going back all yeah. the time mm. to these books in the British Library. They've never Absolutely. been reprinted. Absolutely. Old magazines yeah. and newspapers. But it's sort of our mission well, statement when we set off down this road. You get to road. recreate. Yeah. That, that's the, ha- that's the half the joy of, for us, of, well, certainly for me, because I've been responsible for everything up to the end of the 90s in terms of putting stuff in the, in, in, on the site. And that's absolutely, absolutely the joy of it for me. Is, is, is what's it called? There's, there's a term for it. There's, there is an academic term for going back to original sources, which I completely forget, of course. But I, I just love reading these these things. I mean, that 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 very short series of quotes from readers rave about mm. mods absolutely sort of puts you into a time and place yeah. and a set of attitudes, you know, mm. which you wouldn't get from a Mojo piece. Because well, your whole your whole journey, I think, as a music writer, as somebody who's interested in music, is you start off. With a, quite a lot of received wisdom. Reception studies is the term. Oh, okay. In fact, we, we, we were at a conference in America and this woman came up and said, this is great. This is like reception studies about rock and roll, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it is great. And the consequence is I can't read Mojo or Uncut or those magazines anymore at all. I just can't do it. I find 
going back, reading retrospective stories about pop and rock just leaves me entirely cold because I really get a big kick from reading the original interviews at the time, the, mm. the original reviews at the time. I suppose when you're writing a retrospective, what I always try and do is, yeah. is that kind of... Yes, of course. ..the research in the British Library yeah. because you're trying to get away from those clichés. Yeah. Yes. My generation definitely grew up with this idea that it was like, it was prog rock as far as the eye could see... And then punk happened. Yeah, yeah no, of Like, there are always... Every yeah. kind of... Me- it's the kind of the bad documentary Absolutely. version of everything. And it's yeah. always... When I get excited is when you're going through and you're going, oh, it that's... It wasn't quite like that. That's yeah. unexpected. Yeah. Or uh, that's a kind of an idea that we think of as very modern, that mm. somebody is voicing, like in the Orwell's mm. case, in the 1930s. Yeah. It's always that stuff. And then I think, OK, I'm giving somebody something that isn't just... Yes, the received. ...the bad documentary yeah. Yeah. version. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Dorian, thank you so, thank much, you so much for coming in. It's been a treat. It's been a real honour. And where does the Romaniacs podcast stand now? Yeah, yes. Yeah, like, well, it, we can. Well, we continue because you know there's the transitional period. Yeah, and then there's a new one that that Andrew set up, which I'm going to be involved with, called the Bunker, which is a more kind of wide ranging sort of news, great and culture. And at some point, Romaniacs will will end. But you know, Brexit isn't. Despite what you may be led to believe, done. <laughs> no, yes. no. Yes. Quite a so lot you of... haven't brought your got Brexit done tea no. towel. <laughs> There's a lot to thrash out, and even though I, <laughs> I wish we weren't called, you know, not obviously, it, obviously, Romaniacs has it's become a little too optimistic a name now. <laughs> um, but you know, we do have a lot of listeners who kind of just with sort of information and and gallows humour. Mm, yeah. So we're going to keep doing that for a while. So you're not going to rebrand it as sore losers. Which, in a sense, Solid. we all are, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, we, we, I think, you know, if we've alienated any of you out there who don't share our sadness at leaving the European Union tomorrow night or tonight, whenever you're listening to it. Tough. Tough. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Watch a dog yeah. tree. Or yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, so, but... So we're going to go up with I think this. the key thing is that what we've done today is celebrate European yeah, absolutely. Music, in a way that yeah. the Remain campaign, when before the referendum yeah. happened, failed, failed to, to do. Failed I mean, to celebrate Europe. One of the failures of the Remain campaign was its failure to celebrate Europe. Absolutely, and we will continue to celebrate Europe. We will. We are Europeans sitting we'll, here with our new blue passports. We will no longer listen <laughs> to no, Morrissey. There's no mention of Krautrock during the <laughs> referendum campaign. That could have won it. That could have won it. Right. Um, um, so, so we're going to go out with this is Mar. It's a long clip where members of Cannes discuss Damo Suzuki's very first show with them and in the audience and remaining throughout the show, one of the few who remained for the whole show... was a Ramona. ...was David Niven. It's, it's fabulous stuff. And uh, we'll see you all next week. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. Olga was lying on his uh, back and had, I had the bags on top of him. And I had put uh, two huge bricks on the organ. <laughs> on the keyboard. On the keyboard. <laughs> and then, Sometimes shake the register. And, and, and just, just left them there and turned, <laughs> turned it to the, to the up man. <laughs> Sort of 
<laughs> yeah, well, and, 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 and then they and then Dalmo uh, came, and, and Jackie was drumming like like a madman. Yeah, he yeah. got all red, all uh, getting against this. He just drummed like a madman, and then on this thing with uh, Dalmo, Dalmo got. I mean, the most violent performance I've ever seen in my life. Really? I've never seen ever, ever, <laughs> even afterwards, uh, somebody on stage being so violent. <laughs> yeah, but the cake came as and well. And then, yes, and then Holger all of a sudden came in with, with a huge pack of cake. <laughs> <laughs> and Dama put this cake all over his face and everything. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was, and it was a noise. I mean, this organ was screaming and the guitar was screaming but it weren't played they were there and we were just cussing it <laughs> so if we should have the stone just displaced in another room so I put it there and then I left the organ again screamed and these people I mean they left one after the other in pure horrifying <laughs> and, um, and yes and then uh, the few which stood, I mean, thought they have assisted the most astonishing event of their life. They certainly had. <laughs> yeah, David, and David Niven was asked. Yes, yeah. uh, he, oh, was, uh, really? he was, and he said uh, he couldn't say that he uh, heard music, but certainly he had the strangest thing he has ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, and, and the greatest show he had ever seen. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> and our manager was uh, felt very very shiny Das war Cam im Gespräch mit Andy Gill im Jahr 1997, welches den dieswöchigen Rocksback Pages Podcast abschließt. Vielen Dank an unseren Gast Dorian Linsky. Weitere Informationen über seine Bücher sowie zum Romaniacs Podcast finden Sie auf seiner Website unter dorianlinsky.com. Die Moderatoren waren Barney Hoskins, Mark Pringle und Jasper Murison Bowie. Produzent war Jasper Murison Bowie. Der Rocksback Pages Podcast ist Teil des Pantheon Podcast Netzwerks. Bei rocksbackpages.com finden Sie tausende von Artikeln sowie hunderte von originalen Audiointerviews. Auf Wiedersehen! Yeah.